Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show offering unique insights and in-depth analysis featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon, then up as a podcast. You're with MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I've got 30 minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. A very warm welcome. It's Tuesday, the 21st of November. Coming up in our program, the prospect of working political coalitions in South Africa. How Johannesburg can rebuild its continental economic reputation, if it in fact still has one. Behind the ShopRite pick-and-pay packaging row, while several shopping malls nationwide are going under the hammer this month, and the parlour state of our drinking water in South Africa, and why it's getting worse. Let's start with this, and the Indlula Miti South Africa Scenarios 2035 is a barometer of the country's status, and then goes on to present new scenarios on where the country might be in 2035. Why is that date important? Well, it marks 40 years of democracy in South Africa. We're in conversation now with Kolelwa Kashi Katia, who is project leader, and one of the scenarios is the emergence of something called a liberal right coalition. Explain that to me. There are key things that are driving these stories. So it's not necessarily predictions or it's a, a, a one single pathway. So there's three different ways through which that this emerges. But what we know as a key driver is that there will be coalition governments, right? So that is the point of departure. But then the way it emerges, it emerges, it emerges in three ways. In, in the Hadida scenario, for example, what we have is a centrist coalition but it's really about a blame game and everyone is shouting and bickering and blaming everybody else. In the vulture culture, this is where now the rights, more rights, uh, to, uh, operating more to the right type of coalition government again, which is populist and authoritarian uh, because of the nature of that scenario. And then lastly, when it comes to the Weaver work, which is yet another scenario, what we see emerging in terms of a coalition is one that you know, more broader in terms of representation. And it's actually more strengthened and it's called, it's referred to as a Concord Compromise. It's a type of compromise, you know, that resembles what happened during the transition. So these things, you know, will be in various ways. We don't know yet where we will be by 2035, but these are the three likelihoods, you know, where politics and governance are concerned. So those are three scenarios. Do you have a sense then of what the optimum trajectory might be or is it too early to call that given that there are so many variables in predictive analysis? I mean, it's always difficult for us to respond to this question because everyone is always interested in what's the best one and the Weaver work sounds like uh, the the best because even this coalition that's broad and more principled is actually triggered by citizens rising up and taking matters into their hands and challenging the status quo, especially with the recapture of key institutions and just you know, the citizens, yes, they get disillusioned, but at some point they rise up because they're just basically cut 
with everything that's been happening, things worsen, there's assassination of whistleblowers. So that's how you end up with that type of government. So if you were to say, yes, we wish we could actually end up in the weaver work with concords and compromises, then there's a lot that has to be done by citizens themselves you know, in terms of challenging you know, status quo right now because it takes a while to get to 2035. But also we can leave things as they are and maybe we continue and become this bickering, hard-eater nation. Or things could get worse than they are today, you know, and end up in the vulture culture now where you have this more right-of-center kind of coalition that silences media and the capture of SABC and other state-owned institutions and weak border controls with criminal cartels running the show. So it depends on what we focus on is all social partners, whether it's citizens or business or the state, for that matter. So there has to be a lot of cooperation, in particular from a civil society, which we know has been weakened. In fact, that's probably the most important thing to come out of this study, the importance of the role of civil society, community groups and others in, as you put it, fostering active citizenship. Do you think that we need to do more in that respect then, whichever scenario is likely to emerge? Yes, I think, you know, the main thing is that we need to be ready for any scenario because we can't predict, you know, when you write scenarios, you're not in the business of predicting or we're not seers. So what if we work towards weavers and then the vulture culture emerges? So the idea is to have strategies and plans as organizations, as community-based organizations, as businesses, you know, have strategies that can be resilient to any of those eventualities. We know the ugly scenarios of vulture and the Hadiths are most likely because we are somewhat already you know, it just hasn't gotten that word. So how do we ensure that whatever plans we have or strategies are resilient to any of those? So yes, there is civil society that's required, but there's certainly a lot that's required from business. Certainly needs to be a focus on young people because it seems like young people would be at the forefront of driving the weaver nation or the realization there of them working. You know, they're the ones actually create these uh, social movements per se that, you know, become the ones that lead the actual act of challenging the state through creative industries or also social media and artificial intelligence, which they're quite attuned with. So the final question then is, what role does business have to play in all of this? Business has a big role to play. Firstly, just on the basis of the history that we have, and we know that even with the TRC process, there were certain like various recommendations that were made there, especially in terms of wealth. And as much as there's so much poverty in our country, there's wealth in South Africa, and hence us being this deeply uh, you know, um, unequal country. So how does then business bring something to the party? Business certainly cannot be folding their hands and waiting for an incapable state to actually drive policy. So what business would need to do, they need to be more activist as well. The same way we're expecting civil society to rise up like it did in the 80s where everyone takes out to the streets and they challenge and eventually things shift. Business also, by virtue of being of the country, needs to also take on that very activist stance in recognition of the historical wound that is still festering in South Africa. I'm going to leave it there and thank you very much. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. All right, let's move now from political forecasting to economic planning. And today, the Johannesburg Chamber of Commerce is hosting an Africa 2024 event 
that it says is to spark Southern African economic revival. Now, given that the city of Johannesburg is the continent's economic powerhouse, revival is in our best interests. I'm in conversation now with Duncan Bonnet, who is first vice president at the JCCI. Duncan, you wouldn't be hosting this event unless you were concerned about something. Where are we faltering in terms of revival? Good afternoon. Yes, I, um, I think that there are quite a few different issues, but the the, the key ones, I think, um, that need to be addressed and, and addressed as a matter of urgency include the regional logistics capacity. Um, and that's not simply for South African companies to export into the region, but also to import from the region. Uh, we send far too many containers north of, of us uh, that come back empty, and that ultimately uh, uh, has an impact on our competitiveness. But uh, other issues would include things like the the border posts. We've seen um, what the delays and the blockages are, uh, and that is a knock-on effect uh, from the capacity that we have at our borders, but also some of the, the complexities around um, different countries and different systems, different requirements, different paperwork, and so on. So I think there's a, there's, there's a number of issues that need to be to be looked at in that respect in order to to build on um, what is already a fairly vibrant region. And all of this, of course, absolutely critical to Johannesburg, as I mentioned in my introduction. Uh, We do, to some extent, uh, still hold the mantle of being the continent's economic powerhouse. Absolutely. And and I think if you... If you look at it, Jeremy, we we um, South Africa is on course this year to export in excess of half a trillion rands worth of goods into the rest of Africa, um, and around about somewhere between 85 and 90 percent of that is into the rest of the SADC region in Southern Africa, um, and of that, about 90 percent is value added. So, um, our factories, our businesses. Um, whether they're manufacturers or the service providers that underpin them here in, in Johannesburg um, really do need and rely on the rest of the region for our, our well-being. And I think so. It's obviously in our interest to see where we can um, work to, to make access into these markets a little bit easier. You've got some tough talking, though, because we have complex challenges facing Southern Africa, uh, global conflict, which has a spillover effect as far as we're concerned, uh, regional instability. Where are or how difficult would it be to implement the kind of intervention that you're talking about? I think if you, you know, from a global perspective, that's global. There's not not a huge amount we can do, uh, especially in the short term. But I think what what we're seeing and what we have seen for a little while is that one of the knock-on effects of both COVID uh, and the the conflict in Ukraine and now obviously with renewed conflict in the Middle East um, is that project developers in particular, but but businesses in general are looking to source from shorter supply chains. So where two or three years ago, you may have had um, regular supply out of out of Asia, uh, companies are now saying, well, we, we can't we can't afford to take that chance. We can't afford to take those risks. So there is already a, a movement towards shorter supply chains, regional supply chains, which I think is of benefit. Um, and I think that there's also a fair amount of work going on behind the 
the scenes through our Department of Trade, Industry and Competition, through some of our embassies, our export councils, um, the Chambers of Commerce, the ASAC, the Association of Chambers of South Africa, um, to work together to understand um, what the the immediate nitty gritty requirements are and how we can we can look to 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 implement measures that would mitigate the 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 disruptions and the delays that we face. So, Duncan, the sense I'm getting is we're sitting or at least uh, starting to bounce on a very a potentially interesting and, and and beneficial springboard. So what would your advice be to business then? We've got the International Monetary Fund, for instance, projecting regional growth acceleration. So how should your constituency then be preparing to capitalize on this growth uh, should it come? I think that the, the answer to that is quite simple, is you actually have to just get out there. Um, you know, and I know that, that might be a little flippant, but the, the, the bottom line is global competition in sub-Saharan Africa is intensifying. It's intensifying um, on a literally on a daily basis from not just traditional competitors in Europe or, or in emerging Asia, but from the Middle East, from North Africa, from Latin America. Um, and companies really do need to do their homework. Look at the opportunities carefully, um, and then they need to actually get into those markets and fly the flag. Um, so, you know, there, there's no substitute for actually getting on a plane and going and visiting either project developers or potential importers and distributors in other countries and making sure that they understand who you are. I think in the immediate Southern African region, um, South Africa is is well known as a supplier, but the further north you go, um, the less apparent that is. You know, from from Joburg to Lagos is pretty much the same flight time as from Lagos to the UK. Um, So once you get up to West Africa, people don't have a focus on South Africa as a supplier. So we do need to to take a look from your own industry perspective, what products or services you you, you offer, and then see where the best fit is mm. um, over a longer term. Uh, the, the the idea of parachuting in and out, I think, is gone, and you need to start taking strategic decisions about countries, projects, and opportunities that best suit your your business, and then pursue them and and put the resources in that need to be put in yeah, in order to to do that. I think that's very good advice. Someone was saying to me the other day that uh, it's. Uh, a shorter flying time from Johannesburg to Lusaka these days than it is from Johannesburg to Cape Town. So uh, some food for thought there. <laughs> Duncan Bonnet, thank you very much Absolutely. indeed from the Johannesburg Chamber of Commerce. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. Now, this is an interesting battle. Pick and Pay has been interdicted by the High Court in Cape Town from passing off its crafted collection products as those of ShopRite Checkers, Forage and Feast brand. So let's delve into this a little now. With me is leading brand expert Jeremy Sampson. He's from the Brand Finance Consultancy. He's also been an expert witness in dozens of intellectual property cases. So, Jeremy, a warm welcome. How challenging is it to prove intellectual property infringement? Interesting question. Yes, we're into the world of copycats, and there's a rich vein of different copycats that have been used. Look, we know that checkers and pick and pay are head to head, and sometimes it can be very, very difficult to prove things because, you know, as we know, we've talked about it on this program before, marketing is war. And here you have a retail war going on, not just between checkers, ShopRite, and pick and pay, but between the others as well. Sometimes it can be very difficult to prove, 
because sometimes the strategy is to get as close as you can to another major brand without actually crossing that line. And then you would ask, well, where is that line? And that's sometimes the debate. But I am intrigued that the, the judge has been very dogmatic, very concise in her ruling on this. And she really goes to town in her judgment. It's actually quite a good read. Jeremy, what kind of damage can occur to a brand like Forage and Feast when another brand is accused of imitating its products? Could it be severe? Yes, it could, because it dilutes that. You know, we know that Forage and Feast has been around since, what, November 2020, I think it was. There's been a huge investment. I I see on the press releases that it has sales now, it's claiming sales of about 180 million. Now, that means it's been a very, very successful launch and brand for Checker ShopRite. And uh, you don't want anyone diluting that or eroding it in any way. And and this is the thing that people forget when you register a trademark. That's only the first part. The second part is you have to protect it because there will always be those who look at you perhaps or look at your brand and think, hey, I'd like a bit of that, please, and try and cozy up to you. So I think ShopRite checkers are showing don't mess with us. Uh, with the big gorilla on the block at the moment, as it were, on retail, because they're having a hell of a good run. But they're actually showing that they're not going to allow any of their competitors to erode what they're doing. It does raise the question, of course, as to why some companies would risk potential legal consequences by embarking on a copycat strategy. Look, it's a well-known strategy. When you have private label, you have generics, you have premium store brands, you have value innovators, and you have copycats. It's a well-known strategy to be used, but you're absolutely right. You have to measure off how much the damage can be both reputational and financial. Now, it's interesting that in this judgment, Pick and Pay is going to be allowed to continue with their crafted collection through the Christmas period. And you and I know that for retailers, this is the period of the year that you make hay or try to. So it's going to be interesting to see this plays out because the longer they're allowed to use it before, in fact, the, the crunch comes and they have to stop, the more expensive it could become for them. What kind of strategies then, Jeremy Sampson, can companies employ to differentiate their products, avoid accusations of imitation, but also play in that same space? Sometimes you start something totally from scratch. But as I say, copycatting is a strategy where you look at what someone else has done and is successful and you think, well, how can I climb on their shoulders, as it were, but do it in such a way that perhaps I'll avoid the risk of litigation. There might be some huffing and puffing from the other side, but they actually won't resort to bringing in the lawyers. Um, And that's sometimes the games companies play. I certainly remember in the UK that the major supermarkets spent a lot of time seeing how with their own house brands they could actually get as close to the major brands like the Kellogg's and the Procter and Gamble's and people like that without actually crossing that line. Sometimes they get away with it, sometimes they don't. But this is interesting because there's two actual supermarket chains going head to head against each other. And that's a little bit unusual, I think. It's an interesting conversation, but uh, will there be any huffing and puffing, as you put it, from consumers? Do they really care? Does it have any impact on brand loyalty? Well, I think this is where it's interesting because you know, both the brands are only available in their own retailers. So, you know, we know that Pick and Pay is Crafted Collection. We know that um, Checker ShopRite is Forage and Feast, and you can't get them anywhere else, to my knowledge. Always, of course, there is the thought, though, that down the line, those brands might become available elsewhere. 
And this is where sometimes, you know, I've certainly been involved where lawyers have said, well, at the moment, we don't see this as much of a threat, but down the road, it could be. So this is where we want to nip it in the bud if we can. But again, it's an interesting because, as I said earlier, I find that the judgment is very, very crisp and concise. There's no messing about. The language is very clear that she says that uh, Cheka ShopRite have a very, very strong case, and that's why she's ruled in their favor. No messing about. Jeremy Sampson from Brown Finance. Thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. The 2023 Blue Drop Water Report, which measures quality compliance and water chemical quality, shows that around 15% of South Africa's water supply systems were in poor and or critical condition. In conversation now with Kate Stubbs, Marketing Director at Interwaste. It's a company that plays in the industrial water space. So firstly, Kate, what's the impact on communities and businesses as a result of that quality finding? Yeah, you know, I think as South Africans, we don't respect our water as much as we should. And what we are seeing is, adding to the the latest blue drop report, that the quality of our drinking water has been declining over the last few years. I think on a positive note, in the larger cities, the quality of our water is still relatively good. But we are seeing a diminishing quality and a scarce supply to to specifically um, rural areas. And I also think there's a decline in our, in our rivers, our natural systems. There's a lot more pollution happening, which also directly impacts rural communities who rely on those very sources for their drinking water. Kate, is there a specific single reason for this decline or is it a basket of factors? I think it's a basket of factors. You know, climate change is a big factor. Certainly, you know, specifically South Africa, we are a semi-arid country. We've seen in the last two years, you know, drought in certain areas and horrendous flooding in some, and both have an impact on our water systems. But more importantly, I think, you know, South Africans, if you look at our history, we actually prided ourselves on a really good quality drinking water. There are not many places in the big cities in the world where you can turn on a tap and drink water directly out of a tap. And Mm -hmm. I think we've been very fortunate in South Africa to have had that. However, there's been a severe decline in investment and maintenance of our wastewater treatment works, our treatment works, and the, the general distribution system. I think in Johannesburg alone, uh, the latest stat I saw was, I mean, Gauteng loses 35% of its water to leakages, and that's drinking water. So that's water that's tre- clean, treated, protocol water. 35% is lost just due to leakages. You know, that's quite severe. And I think we have a skill deficiency. Just generally, as I said, as a South African public, I'm not sure we conserve or or respect water as much as we should. Do you think it's too late to arrest the decline, given what the cost of repair is likely to be? The cost of repair is high. Um, I think we we urgently, there's still time, uh, but it's going to require a collective effort from government, public, business, to sort out our problems. Um, There's large investment required. Uh, I think we all need to have a change in attitude individually, how we manage our water. But some of the reports I've read you know, indicate that there's still time, but there's a great fear that this is heading in the load shedding route. And, you know, there's one thing not coping with electricity, and we've seen what damage that's done to our economy and to people's lives. But water, water is critical. We cannot live without water. And when your taps are dry, we know how inconvenient it is. So I think water needs urgent attention. 
As much of a trope as this is, uh, it's critical to raise awareness among consumers about the importance of water conservation and making sure that it's kept clean. But uh, you'll Mm. agree with me that uh, that approach is, while laudable, I guess, is easier said than done. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're quite poor in, in, in changing our habits. And sadly, we sometimes seen that we have to wait for a crisis to change. I mean, we saw what happened in Cape Town a few years ago, and it's remarkable what every single person did in terms of preserving and conserving water and how that, that radically shifted their lifestyle. But it took an, an absolute near day zero uh, in order to change. And, and why do we always need to go that way? So um, it is hard to change people, but there's a lot being done. Uh, I think also you know, from a business perspective, uh, there's legislation that, that's starting to monitor water usage um, from the waste industry. Specifically, you can't dispose of liquid waste to landfill. So that's forcing a large water consumers and companies that require water to look at wastewater treatment plants to, to retreat effluent. And a lot of that can be done back to potable or at least usable standards. So, so there needs a collective shift in how, uh, how we manage our water um, across the board. What advice in that respect are you giving to your clients and are they heeding it? Well, as I said, from a legislative perspective for, for many of our clients, um, effluent or, or liquid waste is banned from landfill disposal. So that's happened in 2019. So um, we offer wastewater treatment solutions for clients. I mean, there's a wide variety of technologies and processes where you can treat wastewater. And also for large users with a large amount of effluent on site, um, you many of them invest in on-site water treatment plants. So certainly that's a positive shift we're seeing. Kate Stubbs, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Marketing Director at Interwaste. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. Several shopping malls worth hundreds of millions of rand will go on auction at the end of the month. I want to delve a little further into this with Greg Dart, who is Director at High Street Auctions. So, Greg, what's the thinking here and why are so many properties on the block? Is this a sign of diminishing confidence in retail? I couldn't say to you, Jeremy, that there is one consistent rationale. Each one of these sellers has a different set of circumstances. In certain instances, the owner of these assets is looking to liquidate and redeploy capital elsewhere. In certain instances, it's a non-core asset, and they're looking to downsize in a region and maybe invest in another region. Timing, there is no specific rationale other than Traditionally, on auction, we have found the end of the year to be a very, very active time for buyers and sellers, either to bulk up or dispose of assets, depending on calendar year, financial scenarios, reporting scenarios. But on the whole, it's not distressed. It's a strategic imperative looking at downsizing, non-core or redeploying Mm. funds. So it would be simplistic, Greg, to say that the traditional retail property sector is maybe losing its appeal in in the current market. I'm going to think that you might even say the opposite. There's no doubt, Jeremy, that the sector is under pressure. It's bounced back well after the COVID shock. 2022, we saw a great recovery. 2023, there have been headwinds. We've seen the metrics of that. You know, real retail sales dropping, vacancies increasing. But there is a trend towards neighborhood and community shopping centers, local shopping centers, picking up where maybe the bigger malls, the big regionals have lost a bit of footfall. At-home economy, people have stopped commuting as much as they used to. They tend to like seamless opportunity of either purchasing online or traveling short distances to a local neighborhood center. I wouldn't say that there's a, a lack of 
commitment to the segment. Yes, there's an element of sentiment downsides or downsiding, a little bit more negative decreasing, but the segment continues to perform well for many buyers. Interesting, some of these owners of property that are busy liquidating these assets or redeploying funds into other retail assets. It might just mm -hmm. be a geographical or footprint change. Maybe they're moving from a bigger regional mall into a neighborhood mall to talk to the at-home economy trend that we are seeing. We also anticipate, Jeremy, that the, the purchasing power of the individual should improve a little over the near term. We don't envisage any more interest rate hikes. Hopefully, in 2024 and 2025, at least a 50% basis point in each year to to improve purchasing power. So hopefully that has an impact in the retail segment. And I think some of our sellers are taking a view that the sector will improve, but there is a strategy around where they're currently located and the size of the property that they currently hold. So certain segments more under pressure than others. It's a balancing of portfolio often, but there's still a very keen buyer market. So all of these assets that we've taken to market are finding a great deal of interest. We're hosting lots of viewings with buyer candidates across the country on these retail assets. So I wouldn't, despite the headwinds, be as bold as to say mm. the segment is losing its luster. It's a matter of managing your risk and understanding the segment and how you operate there safely. And I suppose you would be confident that the auction prices will reflect the true market value of these malls, again, given the economic climate that you've referenced. The good news here, Jeremy, is that there, there seems to be quite a bit of competition for each one of the assets we've taken to market. So despite there being the assumption that there could be some value decay, just the price tension that is created on auction and the the friction on the auction floor should allow us to extract an optimal price. Certainly competition helps raise uh, the value expectation for the property. And we selected these properties very specifically, Jeremy. Each one of these are traditionally uh, regional, regional shopping centers. And that's where we're seeing more demand at the moment, marketplace. Demand is in evidence. There are buyers with capacity. People are moving into the regional and community type retail segment more so than the high-end nationals and so on. So we've got buy interest. Uh, we've got competition for a segment that is still finding support. It talks to a number of trends in the marketplace, including the at-home economy that we've spoken about. So with all of those variables being in place, I anticipate that auction will unlock op optimal value, yes. And just a final question, are there any particular areas as a result of this sale that are, that are interesting, that are noteworthy? One thing I should touch on here, Jeremy, quickly is that, yes, uh, talking to what is more noteworthy, our township retail really is of great interest to us. We know that this township retail segment is underserviced. It's what is called a defensive uh, portfolio strategy. We actually had um, a guest speaker about two months back. I host guest speakers at each one of our auctions, Smital Rambai, who's the fund manager for the Community Property Fund which is a specialist rural and township retail fund, came to give us a talk on their portfolio of about 7.3 billion rands worth of retail and township assets. He was making the point that township retail is a very defensive set. The product mix and the services mix is, is very much essential goods and services. Your buyer demographic typically are paid a SASA grant. They tend to hold that money for these essential goods and services. So even in economic shocks like we've seen the likes of COVID, people continue to spend in township and rural retail stores. 
So it's a very defensive sector. You find that your trading densities in a township retail center are typically better than your traditional because of the fact that essential goods and services are on that ticket. Lack of competition, as I say, underserviced. They tend to focus on areas where there's good footfall and, and transport nodes. They've got a high volume of people moving past those centers every day. And the two properties that we've got on, on auction now talk to that. We're down in, in Port Elizabeth, in Motherwell, in Kwasakele. And these are very populated townships in the Nelson Mandela mm-hmm. area. Uh, good, strong anchor tenants in the likes of Boxer and Newsave, and and really finding a lot of interest in these assets as well. Greg Dart, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining me today. And as we finish the program, other stories on our radar. Israel has recalled its ambassador to South Africa ahead of a BRICS meeting to discuss the ongoing situation in Gaza. And Telcom has asked for a delay to South Africa's second auction of high-demand spectrum by year to 2025. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays, then up as a podcast. Goodbye to you and thank you for listening. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.